Well, I'll tell you, I'm very, very encouraged by my time here with you. And uh, great to see so many young people with a heart for the things of God and interest. And I'd actually encourage Brother Jamie to uh, go second because, you know, the Lord has two very special ministries through His Word. He, he comforts the afflicted and He afflicts the comfortable. And uh, I thought Jamie's might go better after because he certainly had a wonderful ministry to encourage and comfort the saints. And, and I have to begin with a, a bit of an apology in that in studying out this subject, I, I'm, I'm not sure, this, I'm afraid it might be half-baked. We'll, we'll have to see whether it's cooked all the way through or not. But it's certainly fresh. I, I spent a fair bit of time last evening and this morning thinking this through. And, and you may have some uh, suggestions as to how to improve uh, this uh, message this morning. But I want to sp- speak a little bit uh, this morning about hope in the early church. And I'd like to read uh, two short passages. The first one is the second epistle to the Ephesians found in Revelation chapter 2. And no one less than the Lord Jesus is composing this epistle. He writes to the church at Ephesus, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, I know your works and your labor and your patience or your endurance and how you cannot bear those that are evil and you have tried those who say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars and has borne and hast endured, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Woo, that sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? But notice the first three phrases there. I know your works, and your labor, and your patience. Now over to First Thessalonians chapter 1. This little assembly, the Apostle Paul had only been able to stay about three weeks, and then he left to uh, draw off some of the persecution that had risen up around this little assembly. He felt that uh, he was a little too hot to handle, and he, he ought to move on and take some of the the hatred and the uh, opposition away from the city of Thessalonica. And he writes back to the saints there, and he says this, in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the sight of God our Father. What a dramatic difference. The words are clipped in Ephesians, the Ephesian epistle. I know your work and labor and patience. And it seems to me that very often it's easy to emphasize the mechanics of the Christian church and miss the dynamic. The spirit of New Testament Christianity that made all the difference. And so we've been thinking a little bit about their the work of faith and what that means. Letting God be God in our lives. Statement Elijah made. Let God be God. Don't bring God down to our size. Don't, don't pray prayers that are so small you could answer them. Don't ask Him to do things that you could do. Let God be God. Letting God be God in our lives by obeying the extreme commands, by claiming the radical promises that are found in His Holy Word. And doing that in such a way that God is essential to explain the way I live. And therefore, that God gets all the glory for my life because there's no way I could pull it off. And then we thought a little bit about the labor of love. You know, I I was over in England and I was talking to the brethren there about expanding their vision. You know, there are many dear Christians, they've, they've lost hope. They've lost hope. And they, they, they feel the greatest, the greatest hope they have is if we can just keep going till the rapture. If we can just keep this little place open and, and keep the Christians relatively content until the rapture. And I begin talking about the possibilities in England and what God could do there. And they're saying, well, you know, Jabe, you're from America and they do big stuff over there. But we're, you know, we don't think that way over here. I said, don't give me that stuff. You know, (laughs) the people who inspired me, they all live within a few blocks of this place. Let's go. I jumped in the car. So let's go down here. We drove over to one little town. And here's a Baptist church building. And painted on the side of it are the words of William Carey. He was sent out to reach the lost from this little Baptist church and painted on the side are the words of William Carey. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. I said it was people like George Mueller that inspired me. As we as we see these men, men like... like uh, Billy Bray and John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, in his 20s, reaching London for God. And these men who, uh, as I read their stories, 
the so-called early brethren. Do you know at one time they rented every theater in London on Sunday night to preach the gospel? I mean, we think some of the things we're doing are radical. You, you read some of these boys. They had a heart as big as the promises of God. They believed what God said. They believed that it was possible to reach the world with the gospel. They thought it was possible to live the way these New Testament believers lived. And what is it, this labor of love? Well, it's hard work, obviously. The word labor sounds like hard work to me. And it is hard work. But it's the, it's the disarming and winsome influence of the love of God, that phrase shed abroad in our hearts, maybe not quite clear to us, but it really means that the love of God has been so poured into us, God has been so generous with His love that it percolates through us in such a way that everything we touch, everything we say, every person we meet, it, it's like it drips out of our fingers. It, it flows out of our mouths. Uh, people see it in the look in our eyes. And they, and they catch, not us, it's not us, it's the love of God that is manifested through the people of God. I was telling the folks a story, a little booklet that's been very encouraging to me called Little is Much When God is in It. And it tells the story of a, uh, a streetcar conductor who was saved and uh, his little story was put into track form and, and how that track reached so many people. But there's a story in there about a man who is waiting to get on the railway car and Sister Abigail, Abigail Townsend Luft, who was always handing out tracks, she'd slip them behind uh, you know, frames of pictures and under doors and in drawers and, uh, and she just scattered it everywhere. And um, in fact, there's a thrilling story about her. She was riding on the ferry from Fort Erie to Buffalo and she'd heard this about these, these people who had a ministry where they'd put Bible messages in bottles and send them out to float on the, on the currents of the sea. And she had just finished the drink and she thought, no, you just you know, discarding this bottle. And so she dried it out as best she could and she slipped the gospel tract into the bottle and she threw it overboard. And there was a businessman standing and he saw her do it and he thought, what a foolish woman. He knew exactly what she was doing. And he thought, this this is ridiculous, you know. But what he didn't know was that uh, in his trip, as he, when he returned to Fort Erie, he discovered that his partner in business had absconded with all the funds and had left him bankrupt. And he couldn't face it, the, the disgrace to his family, and he decided he was going to take his own life. And he went down three nights to the shore of Lake Erie to, to go into the lake and drown himself, and he didn't have the courage to walk in. And so the fourth night he thought, I'll take a rowboat, and I'll row out into the uh, uh, Lake Erie, and uh, then I'll throw myself overboard, and there'll be no recourse, there'll be no coming, coming back. And so he rowed out, it was a dark night, and he was sitting there in the dark, trying to screw up his courage to throw himself overboard when he heard against the, uh, the boat a little tap, tap, tap. And he reached over, and it was Sister Abigail's bottle. 
Uh, you know, you wouldn't even believe stories like that if it wasn't true that Sister Abigail lived like that every day. And she had all kinds of stories like that. And the fact is that you and I could live like that every day too because there's a God in heaven who sees, a God in heaven who orchestrates right down to the hairs on your head and the tears from your face and the sparrow that falls. There's not an atom in the universe out of the sovereign control of God. Well, anyway, this crippled man was was standing waiting to get on the the rail on the train car and uh, sister abigail got on first and the and the crippled man in order to get in had to sort of leap up and when he did he 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 started to fall and she reached out and she caught him and just for a moment their eyes locked and then he got up and sort of embarrassed he he said it's great having a body like this and she said well no it isn't but you know if you trust the Lord Jesus, He promises to give you a body like His someday. He said, well, I believe there's a God, but I don't think He cares about us. Oh, she said, I know He cares about me. He answers my prayers every day. Well, years went by. She gave, she gave this man a little gospel, this little gospel track. Years went by, and one day there was a knock at the door of El Nathan home. And um, they they answered it, and the lady said, "Is there a lady here that wrote this little paper?" And she said, "Well, yes, yes, uh, she lives here, Sister Abigail." And they introduced her, and the lady said, "I've been looking for you for a long time." She said, "You may have remembered my brother. He was badly crippled, bent right over, and and um, he uh, you gave him one of these papers, and he brought it home." And it stirred up real interest in our family. And we got a Bible and started to read the Bible. And my mother got saved and I got saved and my brother got saved. Well, he died just recently. And, and before he died, he said, please go and find that lady who wrote this paper and tell her, keep looking at people like that. You see, that's when she won the argument right there. That's why he read the tract. Because she, when she looked at him, there was no pity in her eyes. There was no revulsion. He saw the love of God. It's a cold world out there, folks. And if we can express to people just a little kindness, a little thoughtfulness, a little expression of the grace that God has shown to us, when people are irritable, and short and snippy. They don't have a good father like you looking after them. Bear with them. If they blow cigarette smoke in your face, look, that's all the pleasure they've got. Don't begrudge them. They don't have your Savior. They don't have your hope of heaven. To bear with people the meekness and gentleness of Christ. To be, to be patient towards all. Now look, we can't do this naturally. This is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? There's a dear woman in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. She and her husband had a little boy and he was Down Syndrome. And the man couldn't couldn't bear it. He, the husband, he eventually went out and 
He was a policeman in the city of Philadelphia. He took a service revolver and shot himself in a field and left her with that little boy. Well, through the experience, she found the Lord. And she said to me, she's one of the happiest persons I ever met. She said to me, you'll never know the relief when I discovered that joy was a fruit of the Spirit. It had nothing to do with my circumstances. And she is a joyful lady enjoying the fruit of the Spirit. And so this is, the, I think, the concept of this idea of the labor of love, this, this wonderful, disarming, this winsome influence of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts as we allow it to pour through our lives into the lives of others. Our brother Jamie was talking about this, the refreshment in the desert world, the, the very water who is Christ Himself flowing through our lives into the lives of others. And, and this morning I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this idea of the hope of the early church. These, these extreme commands, these radical promises in the Word of God, uh, we found all sorts of ways to modify them, to, to reinterpret them, so they're, they're more man-sized, they're more people-sized. And so we've lost, in many ways, I think, the distinctive difference between the life of the Christian and the life of the average American. We fit in very well. You know, this is what was true of Daniel and his friends. They weren't just marginally better, they were ten times better. It was obvious that they had a God. It was obvious that their God was superior to the gods of the nations because of the kinds of men of God that were produced by fellowship with Him. Think of the extreme command we've been spending a lot of time thinking about go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It just seems so unreasonable. Like six and a half billion people. Is it possible? Well, if it wasn't possible, the Lord wouldn't have told us. And some people say, well, you know, of course... You know, the, the apostles, they did it in their day. Yeah, that's right. But as far as I know, all the people they reached are dead. And all the people who are alive today were not alive when they were here. I mean, they're, they're our, our responsibility. Every generation has to reach every generation with the gospel. Now, suppose, I don't know, there are 200 people here. If um, If the 200 of us said, by God's grace, every day we're going to share the gospel with somebody. Just, one, just once a day. Say, we'll go up in the morning and say, Lord, I want you to bring someone to me today. I want an opportunity to speak for you. And it can be as simple as saying to somebody, have you ever had anyone show you from the Bible how you can know for sure if you're going to heaven. And just have half a dozen verses. You can put sticky notes in your Bible if you want. Carry it with you, a little testament. Just open it up and say, here's what the Bible says. One, two, three, four. It takes five minutes. How would you like to come to heaven with us? 
It may be as simple as just giving them a little gospel tract and saying, here's something that was helpful, or a CD. But just, if, if every one of us, just once a day, just with one person, we shared the gospel. My daughter Sarah came with us to Sioux Falls a couple of years ago. She's uh, now 14. She was just, just past her 12th birthday. And... Um, the first day that everybody went out knocking on doors, she went along with Judah Sachs. Judah actually is quite interested in my daughter, Sharon. And uh, anyway, I was preparing lunch for the team, and when they arrived, Sarah arrived, and she had a handful of contacts, people who had expressed some interest in spiritual things. And her eyes were like diamonds. She was so excited. And you know, she's never got over it. She's probably knocked on more doors than a lot of evangelists. She's She's knocked on doors in South Dakota and Illinois and Michigan and and um, Quebec and Connecticut. I don't know where all she's been. That summer we did, hardly saw her. She was she was traveling here and there. <laughs> Everywhere she heard there was a gospel effort, she wanted to be there. But when she got home, um, I wondered how it would be. I mean, it's one thing being with a crowd and all the rest, but when you get home and you're by yourself, how does it how does it do? I drove her to school the first day, and um, as we drove up the drive and we saw the kids coming into the school, she said, Dad, I want to share the gospel with everybody in this school. I said, Honey, let's pray right now. So we prayed that the Lord would give her some opportunities. Well, the first day she comes home and she says, Guess what? The teacher asked everybody in the class to, to tell what, what they did this summer. And so she told them. She'd been she, out and doing all this gospel work. And they said, well, what's that? And she was able to explain the gospel to her class. But she said, Dad, that's just one class. Friday she came home and she said, uh, you'll never guess what happened. She said, uh, eight girls were sitting around the table at lunch. And one of the girls said, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we all tell something sad about our families? And then Sarah can pray for us. Sarah said the problem was everybody said two or three sad things about their family. I couldn't remember them all. I think I prayed for some uncles instead of aunts or something. But when she was ready to pray, one of the girls said, um, now this is a public high school, a public school. She said, um, um, Sarah, it would probably be better if, if it was quiet in here, wouldn't it? Sarah said, that would be nice. So the girl turns around and says, everybody shut up. Sarah's going to pray. <laughs> you know, I, I think God wants to do that in all our lives. I think he wants to give us these opportunities. They can't be explained any other way. In both cases, Sarah did not initiate that. The teacher asked. The student asked, Right? And I think this is what makes life exciting. When, when we, we can no longer expa- explain the day simply in human terms. When God is doing something in our lives. But suppose every one of us said, alright, we're gonna commit ourselves, God helping us, and you know, if by the end of the week we don't, we don't do it, well then Saturday we say, I gotta, I gotta go out and talk to seven people. You can catch up, that's alright. Right? Well, that would mean that it, uh, suppose you took a, a week off here or there, 350 days in the year. That would mean that just our little group here, in one year, we would contact 70,000 people. Huh? 
And suppose only one-tenth of one percent responded positively to the gospel. I think it'll be higher than that. But suppose it was. Suppose it was one-tenth of one percent. That would mean the next year, well, we'd have 70 more believers to join us, right? And that means that uh, the next year we'd uh, reach 94,500 people. And if it happened again, well, the next year we'd reach 126,000 people. And the next year we'd reach 169,800 people. So that in four years, we'd reach just about half a million people. It's doable. You've got to keep at it. There are opportunities everywhere. I tell Christians that the first five years of my witnessing, I, I was out preaching, for the first five years of my witnessing, I never once initiated a conversation. I'd think about the Lord and what was so wonderful about being saved, and I'd say, Lord, bring somebody to me that needs to hear this, and if you don't mind, let them bring up the conversation. And every time I prayed that, it happened. The Lord's just looking for willing. He's not looking for clever people. He's not looking for capable people. He's not looking for well-educated people. He's looking for willing people. And if you're willing, He's able. Right? He's not, He's, He's there to provide the ability. All we provide is the willingness. And if we're willing, He's able. Or think about this radical promise. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now that's said in the context, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, chapter 4, the context of them sacrificially giving to the work of God. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Um, this, this statement that the Apostle Paul makes to the saints here, your endurance of hope, your hanging in there, your confidence, your certain confidence, because hope, remember, is the present enjoyment of a future certainty. It's not hope so, it's not guess so, it's not maybe it'll work out. It's resting in the certainty of the promises of God. How does this work? Well, says God, here's, here's the deal. You pour out your resources into the work of God. Your time, your energy, your ability, your finances, whatever it is you have. You pour it out in such a way that if He doesn't come to your rescue, you're doomed. Go ahead. He says, give it a try. You, you give me what I want, He says to the people in Malachi, and I'll open the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing you won't be able to contain it. I think what's happened in America, we have, we have this modified American dream. We've confused the will of God with the American dream. 
And we have this idea that we have an inalienable right to be happy and to, and to accumulate things for ourselves. And what we have done is we've stopped up the blessing. Because the way the blessing comes, as we give away what we have, He pours it in. He doesn't do it first. As we give it away, He pours it in. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to give for me. I don't need it. The Lord's looking after me. I want you to give so that you'll receive. And here's the great great thing. You give away temporal blessings. He says, I'll give you spiritual blessings. You give, give away things that, well, you're going to have to give them away anyway. You're not get, you don't get to keep any of it. And so you give it away, and in exchange, I pour my blessing into your life. Now, we all know people. We've met people like that. I hear everybody talk about how they admire Bill McDonald. But who wants to live like him? Or Herman Lum? I think of the Pell family up in Grand Rapids. You could write over their little house as poor, yet making many rich. You go and visit Dave Stifler. He's got a house crammed with stuff. In fact, he's got a house next door to his house crammed with stuff. But you can't get out of the house without him filling up every bag he's got. And he gives it away. As fast as he can get it, he gives it away. Dave Stifler, has, he, he and his wife both had big station wagons because they, they have to haul all this stuff off to camps and, and kid, family meetings and so on. And uh, they live in Blaisdell, New York, near Buffalo, and you know what that's like, lots of snow and lots of salt. So all the cars from Buffalo, you can pick them out on the road. They all have, you know, cancer. And, well, his, his car was sitting there one Thursday after the prayer meeting came out, it was kind of leaning against the curb, all rusted and rotted out. And um, his nephew said to him, Uncle Dave, is that verse still in the Bible? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. He said, yeah, of course it is. He said, is that it? <laughs> and Uncle Dave said, well, no, actually, he said, I've been saving up a little money uh, for a car. i got about $1,000 in the bank. $1,000? You going to buy another one like this? <laughs> Uncle Dave said, well, you're right. He said, you know what? I, I need my faith to increase. Would you pray for me right now that my faith will increase? And so his nephew, the two of them just stood by the curb and prayed that Uncle Dave's faith would be increased. Sunday, he came out to the meeting and two brothers came to him and they said, uh, Dave, we're concerned about your car. We'd like to give you a gift. And they gave him a gift for $12,000. Now, he had mentioned it to no one but the Lord. $12,000, that's a lot of money. And uh, so he called up Tom Lone over in Philadelphia, runs a Ford dealership, and said, Tom, is there any way I could get a good used car, a station wagon, for $12,000? And Tom Lone said, uh, well, he had the 12000 plus the 1000 but he said, that's all I got. And, and Tom said, um, well, I, I don't think I'd get you a used car, a good used car for 12000 but I think I'd get you a brand new one. And so he ordered him a brand new station wagon. Well, the next week, Dave was down in Cincinnati. And um, at the end of the day, the end of the week of meetings, a brother was helping him haul stuff out to his car. Well, he didn't have the new Ford yet. He just still had his old rust bucket. And he's, he, they're hauling the stuff out. And this brother says, brother, is this, like, is this your car? Is this what you, 
said, yeah, yeah, so far. And um, he said, well, you know, uh, our company, we have a, a almost brand new Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, and I wonder if you'd be interested in it. So Uncle Dave told him a story about uh, the prayer of faith and uh, the $12,000 and the new Ford that was on the way. But he said, you know, my wife could use a station wagon. He said, how much do you want for it? Oh, he said, I, I didn't want anything for it. I'm just going to give it to you. So by the end of the week, he has two station wagons, all right? The next week, he goes to York, Pennsylvania, and a brother sees him. Now, Ruth's driving the Oldsmobile. He doesn't have the Ford yet. And his brother says to him, uh, I'm in the uh, auto auction business. I think I'd get you a good car. And Uncle Dave said, I'm sorry, we only have room for two station wagons in the driveway. Well, you think, well, of course, he's a preacher. Brother Jamie's quoted this verse. He said, said that it's one of the Lord's favorite verses. The just shall live by faith. It's not the preachers live by faith. The just, all of God's people can live like this. And the key is that as I give it away, He gives it to me. That's how it, that's how it works. <clears throat> you say that's not very reasonable. Well, I, I agree. Well, that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is not reasonable. When all the facts say otherwise, say, well, look, if we give it away, I mean, how are we going to look after, how are we going to pay our own bills? Well, God said, uh, I'll supply all your need according to my riches and glory. There's a couple up in Grand Rapids. He was a school teacher and she was a, a nurse. And they said, you know, our life is so safe and so ordinary. We really need to put ourselves in a position where God will have to work on our behalf. Because our life can be explained just in normal, natural ways. And so they decided to give away more money than they could afford to do. And they, they did that for some time. Well, you know, after a while, the car needed replacing and, and the living room furniture was shot. And so every time a little money came in, he wanted it for the car and she wanted it for the furniture. And he said, this isn't going to work. So he said... I tell you what, you pray for the car and I'll pray for the furniture. And within a week they had both. A missionary is going back to the mission field and he said to his brother, you're, you're as much a missionary as we are and uh, uh, somebody gave me this car and I'd like to give it to you. And then a teacher at the school said, my grandmother died and left a, a house full of furniture. I'm going to auction it off. I don't need any of it. But I'd like you to go over and take anything you want. They got this beautiful hand-carved antique living room suite because God is God, you know. Now, I think we stopped the fountain. I think that's what's happened. I think we've become very reasonable, very sane people. And we think everything through. And the Bible says that God loves a hilarious giver. You get a bunch of teenage girls together, it gets to be 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night, and they start to giggle. And uh, what are they giggling about? Well, I'm, I'm not sure they even know themselves. Um, they're out of control. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. But the, but the whole idea there is is that God doesn't want us to be scheming and calculating he wants us to be generous. He wants us to give it away, 
to give away our time. We can afford to be generous with our time. The God of eternity is our God. And the Lord Jesus, in the first three miracles He performed, taught us that, didn't He? We just think, if I just had more time, I'd serve the Lord. If you won't serve the Lord with the little bit of time you have now, you wouldn't serve the Lord if you had a lot of time, because the Scripture says if you're not faithful in the little, you won't be faithful in the much. And the Lord proved by turning water into wine in one nanosecond. He didn't need the years that you normally take to make good wine, because He's the Lord of time. And if you put the little bit of time you have into His hand, you'd be astounded at what He could do with it. There's a famous uh, businessman in New York City. His name was James Gordon Bennett. And he wrote a bestseller in the time it took him to ride up to his office in the elevator every day. That's all the time he took. Get on the elevator. Instead of looking at the numbers, he, he noticed that they all went in the same order every day. <laughs> he'd pull out a little card and he'd write a few thoughts. Well, he was saying something. He wrote a bestseller in the time it took him just to ride up the elevator every day to work. How long does it take you to call up a Christian and say, Hey, brother, I'm just thinking about you today. I thank God for you. You've been a huge encouragement to me. Well, I just got a minute here. I read this verse today. I thought it might encourage you. Read the verse. Lord bless you, brother. Maybe a little word of prayer on the phone. That's it. Well, you can do that in two minutes. Or call up an elder and say, I'm sorry, I haven't thanked you for a long time. I want to say thanks. Thanks for being an elder, for caring for the flock. Or to call up a shut-in or a widow and just express in two minutes a little bit of the riches, of the grace, of the blessing that has been flowing. And you know what? If somebody, I meet somebody and they're not, they're not excited about their, their salvation, I can put my finger on it in 30 seconds. If you're not excited about salvation, it's because you haven't given your gospel testimony away. You give it away, you get it. Right? There was a man, some called him mad, said Bunyan. The more he gave away, the more he had. It's like the aborigine who uh, got a new boomerang for his birthday and spent the rest of the day trying to throw the old one away. <laughs> you, you, try to, you try to give away this blessing. You try to enrich other people. It just keeps coming back to you. That's the principle that is given to us in the Word of God. That if we seek the enrichment of other people, if we look after God's business, He'll look after our business. Now, you want to look after yourself, you're welcome to do it. But if you want God to look after it, I tell you this, He always does it better. There's a man down in Louisiana and uh, he was gloriously saved. And he had a, a business, and he called his staff together, and he said, I'm a Christian now, and this business belongs to God. And we're going to run it the way God wants it run, okay? So, um, he explained some of the principles on which the business would run. Well, a month went by, and he heard that two employees were really bad-mouthing and sort of ganging up on one of the employees. So he called everybody together and he said, now here's what the Bible says. If you have something against somebody, you go to them and tell them, you're, you know, let's get it straight. And if you can't do it, you come to me and I'll help you get it straight. But this, this business belongs to God and we're not going to have people gossiping and backbiting about each other. 
And then to stress his point, he said, look, if God wants to burn this place down, it's his business. He can do what he wants with it. That was a Friday afternoon. Monday morning, they pulled in. The whole place burned to the ground. They were in a little apartment block, uh, and there was another guy, an insurance agent, and somebody had felt they weren't treated properly, and they'd come and torch the place. And so he had all these, he actually had contracts with VA hospitals for all their medical equipment. And he had all this medical equipment in there that wasn't his, that was in for repair, and now he had to replace it all. Well, the insurance company wasn't going to pay because the place was torched. You know something he said a year later? We had a better facility. Everything was covered. We had more contracts. But he said, I'll tell you something else. We have a special phone line. People call in from all over the country now, and they say, we understand that um, that your business is run by God, and like you believe in prayer. Could you pray for us? They have a special prayer line, and people call in and ask for prayer. And they have an hour where the Christians get together and pray for all these prayer requests from all over the country. I met a friend down in in uh, Georgia, Waynesburg, Georgia. He had got saved in Memphis, Tennessee, and he worked in the cotton futures business. And he thought when he got saved, I, there's no way I can carry on in this. I don't know one honest person in this business. <laughs> but uh, one day by the water tower, wa- the water cooler, um, he heard a story. He said there's, there's this fa- fellow that owns a, a cotton gin down in Waynesburg, Georgia, and um, at the end of the season, he discovered that his weigh scales were off a bit. And, and so he had cut checks and reimbursed all the farmers. Well, everybody was laughing about this. What an idiot. Nobody even knew it was off except him. He could have kept all that money. So he dialed the, the number. And he said to this fellow, uh, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee in a Cotton Futures office up here and Everybody's laughing about you because you cut these checks for farmers at the end of the season. And the fellow said, well, it wasn't my idea. Oh, it wasn't. No. No, I don't own the business. Well, you don't. No, God owns the business. It was his idea. He said, can I work for you? <laughs> well, this is real stuff. This isn't just for preachers to preach about. This is for Christians to live. And so... When we think of this whole concept of what the Bible means by loving something, the Scripture says that we're to love His appearing. Now, whenever you read about love in the Bible, it means sacrificial giving, doesn't it? You can always put those words in there. So, the question is, if you love His appearing, what sacrificial giving shows me that you love His appearing? If you just say, theoretically, you love His appearing, that's not the same thing, is it? And so, I think as we as we look into the New Testament, we read about the early church. Read Acts 2.41, and you get the chapter to Acts 2.42, and then you stop. Right? Keep reading. It says they had all things common. Nobody thought that what he owned was his own. It's the Lord's. And if you, can, if you need it more than I do, well, then, well, it's yours. Now, I've just been up with these Hutterites in Montana. That's how they live. If I've got a van and somebody else has more need of it than I do, well, sure, brother. You say, well, that wouldn't work. 
Well, it worked in the book of Acts. And you know, the early brethren, that's how they did it. They had auctions, and they auctioned off their tapestries and their paintings and everything that was extraneous. They said, we're not going to be able to take this stuff with us. There's something we can take with us, and that's the souls of people. So we're going to take all this stuff, and we're going to translate it into the kind of stuff we can take with us. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Aren't you at the appearing of Jesus Christ? And so if we can take time, precious time, or materials, or abilities, and somehow take these things that are slipping through our fingers, our time, it's running out. Man, I'm almost 60 years old. I can hardly believe it. I've only got 10 summers left. What am I going to do with them? Right? This stuff is running through our fingers. And we've got to find a way to to invest it in life so that we can take them with us. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on. And how do you do that? By investing in people who are going there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the Macedonian saints. And this is what he says. It's shocking. He says, their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Got nothing to do with your bank account size. Has to do with your heart size. Has to do with your vision. Has to do with your hope. If your hope is not down here, if it's not being comfy, it's not being well-to-do, it's not being enjoying the present, if your hope is on the other side, then I'll be able to tell by the way you live. Right? Paul says, your, your hope is real. And as the Scripture says, he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he's pure. You can tell a person's theology by their lifestyle. You can say you believe it. But if you really believe it, then it's going to be manifested in your life. Now, I have to admit, I read this stuff and I say, well, is this true of me? Do I live like this? I want to live like this. And I think until we start living like this, I don't think we can expect the world to take us seriously. Because they're, they're living the same way we're living. It wasn't so long ago that when uh, the, the offering was passed, there would be people who wouldn't have any money to put in, but they, they, wanted, they wanted to give. And you'd see a ring slipped in the offering or a watch. And they gave what they had. Think of Abraham. We've, we've already mentioned him, how rich he was. And yet here was a man who chose to live in a tent all his days. And why? Because he couldn't afford a house? Yeah, he could. He could, afford, he could afford a dozen houses. He chose to live in a tent because he was saying something to the people around him. He was saying, I don't belong here. This is okay for a camping spot, but, but I don't want to live here. My my sights are set on a heavenly city. And so I don't want to get too comfy down here. I don't want to live for this world. I want to live for the, the other world. It was a conscious choice, a lifestyle choice he made so that people would ask him. People would say, what's with you? You could have it easy. You could have it cushy, man. What are you doing living in a tent? 
And he would be able to tell them, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. One brother took me on a tour of a, his home in Ireland and, and he said with a wink, signs of our pilgrimage everywhere. we got some pretty fancy tents, don't we? And it's so easy for us to settle down and feel as if this world is our home. But it isn't, is it? We all know what Jesus said about not laying up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, about not living for the wrong world. I think of, I didn't see the movie, but I understand at the end of Schindler's List, he's standing looking at his automobile, and he's calculating how many Jews could have been saved if he'd sold his car and used the money to rescue them. Now, one of these days, we're not going to be here anymore. We're going to be on the other side. And I'll tell you this, there are some things you can only do in this world. You can't, you can't suffer for the Lord Jesus in heaven. You can't sacrifice for Him there. You can't bear shame for Him there. Everybody's, every knee is going to bow there. This is our chance. This is our opportunity to identify with the Lord Jesus in the day of His rejection. If I, your Lord and Master, have done these things, show me a penny. Right? That's what Jesus said. Like, we're a long way from there, aren't we? Now, one of the, one of the most important things to realize as we think about a subject like this is that the early Christians were not compelled to give anything. They were not made to feel guilty. No brother was to judge another brother and say, I don't think you ought to be doing this or having that. It was between them and the Lord. God doesn't want it if you feel obligated. If I bring flowers home to my wife and she says, Oh, honey, they're beautiful. I wasn't expecting these. And I say, Well, I felt obligated. He doesn't want the flowers. Right? The Lord wants wants us to be willing givers. And if we don't give it willingly, He says, keep it. I don't want it. It has to be motivated by the great sacrifice of Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. That verse is right in the context of our sacrificial living for Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. He's just talked about the Macedonian saints. They were already poor. Anybody could have forgiven them for keeping what they had. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't that they felt obligated to give. They couldn't help themselves. They gave out of a sense of, of overwhelming riches. Right? Their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. What happened was, they were so overwhelmed with the, the fact that God had loaded them down with blessings. They said, we've got to give some of this stuff away. And so that was the spirit in which the Macedonians gave. And so in the middle of that, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. What's the purpose of that verse? Is that just so we'll feel warm and cuddly and no the purpose of that verse is for us to follow his example isn't it 
And I, I confess to you, I, I mean, I, I'm just starting to examine this again. There was a long time I used to preach I, at all these qualifiers to explain why what the early church did is something we ought not to be doing today. But I, sorry, I can't, I can't go along with that anymore. I can't go along with that. Because I see throughout history that it's been true. And when I go and visit these saints up in, up in Montana, they have so little. They've been thrown off a colony with nothing. But whatever they have, well, it's, it's the Lord's. It's for the Lord's people. Whoever needs it, it's theirs. And I see the spirit of Christianity. And I, I take these people seriously. Because they're living the way Jesus lived. They're living the way Bill McDonald did. People, everybody says, yeah, three cheers for Bill McDonald. But I say, hey, there was a man who realized that the way to be rich was to give it away. Right? The way to be poor is to keep it. And quite frankly, Bill wanted to be rich. And why did he want to be rich? Well, so he could pour it out at the feet of the Lord Jesus and say, this all belongs to you. Right? He didn't want it for himself. And so this is the, the opportunity we all have to look at our lives and say, Lord, here's this, here's this time. Here's this opportunity. Here's this relationship. Here's this money. Here's whatever it is, this, this ability. I want to lavish it. I want to give it away. And I'm counting on you to meet my needs. I don't want to meet my needs anymore. I've been doing that for too long. I've tried to meet my own needs. What I want is to look after your business, to have a single eye to look after your business. It's like the story of the horse race. The rule of the horse race was the last horse across the finish line wins. So, of course, the horses slow down, slow down, finally stop. So they get off the horses, they have a little conversation, then they get back on the horses and they and they ride those horses like fury to, towards the finish line. So what did they do? Well, they swapped horses. Right? So if I get across the finish line first, my horse wins. This is what God has done. He says, you look after my business, I'll look after your business. That's the path of blessing, isn't it? And so to begin to examine my life, to look at this stewardship that God has given me, and to see everything in the light of eternity, to spread, this is our homework, and this is tough, I know, to spread our little lives out before the Lord and say, Lord, what, what would you like? It's all yours anyway, right? We, we sing that chorus and it catches right here. Uh, we sang it last night, didn't we? About, um, uh, I've given him everything, I've given him all. Well, I have. When I got saved, that was it. It was unconditional surrender. I don't belong to me. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. We know that. And yet somehow we take all this stuff, time and everything, and we treat it like it's ours. So the real question is, as I spread it out before the Lord and I say, Lord, this isn't mine. I'm sorry. I've been treating it like it's mine. What do you want to do with this? What would you, how would you like me to spend this time? How would you like me to spend this money? How would you, what would you like me to do with this thing? You want me to sell it and give the money to somebody else? You want, what do you want me to do with it? Now, the Lord doesn't have a communications problem. He'll let us know in no uncertain terms. You know what happens? 
as we see this happening, the more we give away, the more he gives. The richer we are in the true riches. And I've seen enough people like that, people that the world would pass by and say, look how poor they are. But you spend a little bit of time with them and you find out that they're the people who are really rich. We're not, we're not enriched by what we take up. We're enriched by what we give up. And as we give it up for the Lord's sake and say, Lord, this is yours. I don't know what I've been doing. What have I been thinking? I've been treating all this stuff like it's mine. It's not mine. It's yours. Is this how you want it to be used? And as the Lord begins to enrich others through the sacrificial giving, do you think we'll miss out? Remember Ed Harlow years ago, he was talking about young men. This is just when video cameras were coming in. They cost ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 each. And he encouraged some young men to get into video production for the Lord. And this young guy said, uh, man, we'll starve to death. And Ed Harlow said, well, I don't think you'll starve to death. But if you do, I'll form a little committee and we'll build a memorial to you. Because you'll be the first servant of God who ever starved to death in his service. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we confess that uh, we unfortunately do let the world press us into its mold. And we have these ideas that we need certain things to be happy. We need certain things to be financially secure. We need to think about ourselves. And yet the Lord Jesus sets the example for us. And thousands of godly Christians have set examples for us as well. People who were always giving, always looking for ways to enrich others with words of encouragement, with precious time, with finances. They, they realized that whatever they had wasn't theirs. It belonged to the Lord Jesus. And they were constantly asking, Lord, what would you like to do with this? How can I use this for your glory? Oh, Father, help us to spend some time spring cleaning, to look through our lives and realize all the stuff we've accumulated. And it's got nothing to do with our happiness. Our happiness, our hope, our joy, our peace is all in the Lord Jesus. So help us, Father, we pray. It's not easy. We... we we live in a world that is obsessed with, with earthly things and earthly activities and earthly blessings, earthly pleasures. Help us, Father, we pray, to live for the world that's still to come and to find creative ways to maximize the use of our lives and our resources for the maximum glory of God. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen.